don't think consumers differentiate between 85 95 and 90 people only differentiate between 0 and 100 at the top there's only room for one right i believe in india 80% of celebrity usage in advertising that i see is not thought creating is easy what to create is a million dollar question hi You're listening to Marketing with Vani in which I speak to marketing gurus. Together we decode how marketing works in the real world to grow your business. Byron Sharp is a professor of marketing science and director of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, the world's largest center for research into marketing. His first book How Brands Grow What Marketers Don't Know has been called one of the most influential marketing books of the past decade. I teach from his book at Ashoka University and also use concepts from his book to help the companies that I work with to help them grow because a lot of the concepts in his book are very fundamental and yet concepts that a lot of us get wrong. This conversation is a crash course in marketing that's relevant today. If you're looking to grow your business, you can't miss this episode. Enjoy. So let me dive in by asking the one question which is the biggest aha I think in the marketing world for all of us. And you've spoken about this a zillion times before in various forums. It's one of the most fundamental things that your book focuses on which is why are light buyers important oh okay i actually didn't know what you were going to say but yes that is a really fundamental one i was expecting you to say that brands grow through penetration not loyalty but in actual fact what you've asked is underpins that yes all brands when they grow get more customers and those customers are slightly more loyal so you could say they grow through penetration and loyalty but the real story is they grow through gaining nudging the entire customer base and mo- most customers are very light so the very simple answer to your question is why are light bus customers so important because there are so many of them yeah and that's true for even the biggest brands of the world and in 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 the book how brands grow i deliberately chose coca-cola as my example because it's hard to think of a brand that's not as bigger than coca-cola and i remember presenting to coca-cola in atlanta and showing them that the typical coca-cola buyer buys them once or twice a year or could actually say no the typical Coca-Cola buyer doesn't even buy them doesn't even buy them that often and that's for Coke right it's the same for every brand most customers barely ever buy us and so why are like if you want to grow you must nudge those people who buy you maybe once every decade to buy you just a little bit more often because there are millions if not billions of them fabulous and would you say that would be the same for all the categories would you say that would apply even for an air conditioner or a toothpaste or a logistics service or a trucking company or a compensation software yes you get in b2b you get a more extreme thing that that you because firms can vary a lot more than households can you can tell to a firm that employs 100,000 people or a firm that employs 10 people so they can vary a lot more and so you do tend to see a more extreme parade that any of our our heaviest customers are vastly more heavy than our lightest but as far as gr- growth goes yes the, i mean i think it's pretty obvious in most b2b categories that the one thing that you need to grow is to get more customers so it's the people who aren't using you at all 
So it's the people who are not using you at all. The one thing to get to growth is to get to customers who are currently not using you is how you're going to get growth. Yes, which is quite a switch from the old segmentation, targeting, positioning theory that I think Philip Kotler made so popular. It's true, both academia and industry were both very obsessed with the growth could come from getting more out of existing customers. And that was our job, that retention was hugely important, cross-selling hugely important. Whereas the real world evidence is, no, not so much. I mean, one of the great things is you do tend to get loyalty. Consumers and businesses are quite naturally loyal. So get some loyalty from your existing customers. The real problem is you just don't have enough loyal customers, not that you, you haven't got enough loyalty out of the ones that you've got. And so coming back to your earlier question, which you articulated, which is penetration or loyalty for brand growth. And, and just tell me, just talk to me a little more about why penetration is more important versus loyalty. Well, the double jeopardy law says it's both. You grow, bigger brands have more customers and they're a bit more loyal or in the double jeopardy is usually expressed in the negative. Small brands have far fewer customers and those customers are a little bit less loyal. So it tells us it's both. But when we look at the empirical patterns, we see that the thing that's doing all the heavy lifting is penetration. When a brand doubles its sales, it nearly doubles its penetration. So it's just not optional. I have heard very senior executives of things like banks say, we don't need any more customers. And we're going to grow by somehow servicing our customers better and then they'll give us more of their business. And that, and it's like, well, in theory, but not in practice. No. Even if you're just hold, wanting to hold on to your market share, you have to be acquiring customers because some of your customers will die. Some of them will leave the country and you will get some defection, but it is usually from big things like that, like getting married, changing jobs, something, things that a marketer can't control. So even if you're doing a wonderful job at satisfying your customers, you will still lose customers, which means you must acquire customers, otherwise you go backwards. And would that apply for all stages of a brand's cycle? Like when I was working on a snack brand called the equivalent of Cheetos in the US, even 25 years after launch, we would still look at the trial numbers. So we had data and we could look at trial, retainers, lapses. But for us, the numbers that we got on trials were always most important because India is such a huge country. And no matter what you do, you're still underpenetrated. So would this principle apply for all stages of a brand's life cycle? Yes. And unless you're in the wonderful position where you have like 100% market share. <laughs> Unless they define their market in a very, very narrow way. Unless they, okay, that's perfect. So which means a brand can be even 30 years old, 50 years old, 100 years old, and it should still be targeting light buyers or new buyers. Yes. And that would be the only sure shot way to grow. Well, yes, it's just not optional. If you're going to grow, you are going to nudge those millions of the very lightest buyers who yes might only buy you once every five years to suddenly do something really radical and buy you once every three years instead billions of people like that which is a sobering reminder to us as marketers that our brands are not very important in consumers lives there'll be a few who love us but unfortunately it's very few most of the people that generate our sales are we are really a footnote for them they're just do you buy our brand? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do buy that brand sometimes. When did you buy it last? 
Oh, I don't know. Maybe last year? That's a very normal customer. And that's a, you know, it, it reminds us as marketers we need to be a little bit more humble and realize that's okay. We're never going to be terribly important to people. People have lives. They have family. They have friends. They have very big, important things in their lives, and our brand will never be much. So, But that's okay as long as we can be a little bit in the lives of billions of people. That's what builds all the great brands of the world. I used to joke. So, sorry, there used to be this marketing consultant, and he's actually on record of saying that brands like the Snickers bar, you know, Mars Snickers bar, they, they really weren't great brands because if someone goes into a store and the Snickers bar isn't there, they just buy something else. They don't leave the store and complain. <laughs> I thought, right, so the only measure of a great brand is that people would be 100% solely loyal. I thought, what would one of the Mars family say about that? And I think they'd say, well, shut up, I'm a billionaire. I know that Snickers is only sometimes bought by, but it's only sometimes bought, but by billions of people. Is only sometimes bought by billions of people, and that is why I'm a billionaire, yes. Which has implications on, of course, availability. It has implications on how wide I target. And everybody says that marketing starting point is about understanding your consumer. And most marketers would like to believe, oh, my consumer is different. My consumer is XXX type. And this is the person I'm going to. And now that we have all of this big data and fancy performance marketing and all of the digital that allows for extreme targeting, if I were to go to exactly that identified consumer, then I would have significantly leveraged or managed the best return on my investments. And I'd be able to get to exactly the consumer who'd most love me. Yes, unfortunately, it won't be many people and your brand will be very small. So, I mean, chief financial officers do not care about marketing ROI. I mean, of course, they want marketers to not be wasteful, but marketing ROI means nothing. What they care about is real profits. And if anything, actually, a high ROI means you didn't spend enough money. Oh, I mean, they're, you can get infinite, like you can get infinite ROI on your advertising spend by just stopping spending on advertising. I mean, well, you're very efficient, but you're not building your brand. So no, it is a fallacy, this sort of efficiency drive and the idea of only talking to the people who are most likely to buy us. Well, sure, we can do that, but that will, and then we will shrink. We'll be very efficient, but we'll get smaller every year and we'll make less profits, but great ROI. Which would you like? A low ROI, but lots of profits or a high ROI and very few profits. So talk to us more about this, Byron, because this is actually a very, very fundamental assumption that a lot of startup founders question, you know, which is that I must invest disproportionately in digital advertising because digital allows me extreme targeting is the conventional belief about digital advertising. And so if I were to optimize and further optimize and further optimize my media plan on the digital platforms and get to my most likely buyer, then I'd be able to get the best bang for my buck or I'd be able to get growth in the most sensible fashion. Because the other view is somehow I must land bags of money, which seems to be the most fancy thing to brag about in the new startup world. But everybody doesn't have bags of money, of course, and everybody doesn't land funding. When you have limited monies, 
then how do you apply this principle of being able to address a larger market? Well, it, all marketers have limited budgets. There's no one. As I say, when Coca-Cola, when I go to them in Atlanta, they always moan about the, their budgets aren't big enough. So that, you know, that's la- it's very lazy thinking to say, oh, well, my budget's not... Un- it has some limits, so therefore I must hyper-target. That, that, that doesn't follow. I think a lot, the, this, it's something of a myth that somehow our new media is somehow magically more targeted than others. I mean, we have not particularly more targeted than any of our traditional media. We do have things online that are targeted, but only in the sense that they're like Google search or pl- placing display or search on Amazon and things is reaching people who are about to buy that category. But that's exactly what we had when we put things in store, right? I mean, no one walks into a store, goes up to the fly spray section without wanting to buy fly spray. So that's, and that's exactly the same when someone types into Google flight to Madrid. Sorry, that's where I am today. So it's exactly the same. And so really what we're talking about is investment in physical availability versus investment in mental availability, which is advertising. And so this has been a long-running battle in marketing. The sales department wants to spend more in store and, and the marketing department wants to spend more on, say, TV. And so it's just old wine and new bottles. And digital is saying, well, we're spending on digital. You, know, you mean you're spending on catching people just when they are about to buy, which is just like in store, and you're thinking that you can just do that rather than talking to very light buyers or people who haven't even bought the category yet. And the answer is we have to do both. It's very hard to get great returns from physical availability if people don't know who we are. And likewise, it's very hard to get great returns from mental availability if people don't know where they can, people can't actually physically buy us. So we have to do both of those. And sometimes people point to startup brands and say something like, well, they, they only used Facebook advertising or something. Well, and they point out to the successful ones and go, oh, that was successful. They only used Facebook. That must have been the reason. No, that wasn't. They only used Facebook because... That's all they could do because they couldn't get into the stores and the other places. They were too small. Yeah. But lots of the others who failed also only used Facebook advertising for the same reason. Yeah. And so we've got to be very careful about cause and effect. We want to use any channel for both our physical availability or mental availability that, that we can afford that gives us as much reach as possible for, the, for minimal expenditure. And we need overlap. We need those two to go together. Now, that is something online has given us the ability to do. You can go along to Amazon and you can buy the sort of the mental and physical availability sort of at the same time. And You can pop up ads and other things. They will sell you advertising and they'll also sell you too. Okay, this is fantastic. So that's attractive, but, you know, you can only go so far with one channel. Even Amazon, it's so big, but... Like I mean, remember when it came into Australia and uh, they asked the big retailers, oh, no, what are you going to do when Amazon comes in? And one of them, I think, who sold durables like fridges and things like that. When Even in the US, Amazon is still a very small player. They're a very big company, but in the total number of fridges that they sell in the US is quite small compared to all the other retailers. And we expect it to be the same in Australia, which, of course, it did turn out to be. So if you were a durable, if you were selling fridges or toasters or whatever, you would use Amazon as a channel. But you'd also have to use some other channels as well. Otherwise, you'd be very small. Perfect. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Okay. So shifting gears a bit, again, looking at this a little bit from the standpoint of startups, 
Shark Tank is the big flavor of the season. We've got our own Indian version of a Shark Tank. And there is this belief amongst all startup founders that if you're not discounting immediately after loan, then you wouldn't be able to get trial lists. So, whoa, are you not discounting? Are you not on a 50% discount? Are you not on a 30%? Then how will you get trialists? How will you get anyone to buy you? So if anyone were to say, look, I don't believe in discounting. I don't want to cheapen my brand. This is a sorry, then you wouldn't get any trialists. What would you say about that? Okay. No, price promotions are pretty terrible ways of recruiting customers. They're very good at giving rewards to existing customers. When consumers shop, they, they don't see most of the brands that are available to them. They just see the ones that they know that have mental availability for. Now, if one of those brands is on deal, of course, that increases its chance of purchase enormously. That's why we get sales spikes from price promotions. But it's not that people who don't know that brand at all. This, I mean, it does happen, but it's very, its reach is miserable to reach people who don't know that brand. They just don't see the price promotion. So it's a crazy idea. I mean, they could be saying it's too expensive. Well, in which case, yeah, so maybe it's too expensive. Price promotions are not a way of fixing a brand that's too expensive. You lower your price if you're too expensive. But no, the startup needs to build mental and physical availability, and it's in a race to do that, and particularly to convince retailers and other channels that do have sales. Price promotions are a terrible way of doing that because they don't get even very much reach. They decimate your profitability. You can do them for a little while, but then you stop, and then the retailer delists you. Retailers love new brands because they just can't lose, can they? If it sells, that's great. If it doesn't sell, it doesn't matter. We'll make lots of money out of it. So so you're saying if I have a new brand and I'm looking for placement in the retail ecosystem, I don't necessarily need to discount in order to get placement. No, there are lots of other options, lots of other creative options. But it's essential that you build some mental and physical availability and that those two things overlap. So... And you're saying price promotions don't win new consumers. With price promotions, actually, it's your own existence. They largely reach our existing customers. I mean, why do we do price promotions? Because they're very useful to the retailers. And so we do some in order to hold on to the shelf space that we've got. Wow. You're saying it it has very to do actually with acquiring new consumers. It's actually more (laughs) to, to pamper and to make sure that the trade still loves me. Yes, retailers are competing against other retailers and they need to have some price specials. So we need to give them some, but no more than is necessary. Right. So so price promotions are not winning new consumers. Price promotions are merely discounting sales for existing consumers, which means that my total sales revenue, which could have been 100, I have discounted that for myself and I'm instead bringing in only 80 or 60 or whatever the extent of the discounting is. Yeah, it causes a sales spike, but of course, which is great. I mean, terrible if it didn't produce a sales spike. But unfortunately, you have to realize that then the retailer asks our competitor to also do a price promotion, and they also get the sales spike. And where do those extra sales come from? Oh, they come from us. So pretty much every single sale that we make when we're on special means that we lose a full price sale later on. Oh, perfect. So which means I get a sales spike when I'm on promotion, but then my competitor is also running a promotion and his products are being bought by my consumers who would have otherwise bought my full price product. Well, we usually have a lot of competitors, so you don't see a dramatic, but it just 
makes your base just a little bit lower all the time. You can imagine a, a simple example, two, two brands in a category and they both don't do price promotions. And then one does some price promotion, it gets a sales spike, its market share increases. What does the other one do? Well, it also does a retaliatory sales promotion. And then where you end up back exactly where you were before with exactly the same market shares, but of course you're both less profitable. Fantastic. So we've both spent a whole lot of money. We've both spent a whole lot of marketing resources, the marketing department. In fact, the whole organization is running Helter Skelter to get this discount scheme into the market because it requires new artworks, new blah, blah, blah. And then finally, at the end of it all, I still have the same sales and lesser profit in the bank. Yes, but you know there are lots of things we spend money on in marketing. I mean, it does cost money to get your to support retailers. So it is a necessary cost of doing business, but it is something that we can easily spend too much on. That really is the lesson. So you're saying it is necessary, but make sure you do it sort of sensibly in order to make sure that you're not doing this your number and finally merely discounting sales that would have otherwise come in. Yes. You want as shallow a price discount as possible. You want it to cost as little as much as possible. And you want to do them as rarely as possible. But you know, if it, if, so if you go, well, that retailer really requires us to do three price promotions a year. Okay, then you do three, but you don't do four. Okay. Because you're not getting a return from the fourth one. The retailer would was quite happy if you just did three. Okay, do three. Okay. So you're saying it's really just to keep trade happy. Okay. That's a very different perspective. Yes. And, and it's very useful to know that because then you stop thinking, oh, the purpose of my sales promotion was to cause the biggest spike, whatever, hurt my competitors the most. You stop thinking about that and you think about, okay, it's about the retailer. So how much do we need to do? And is this the only way that we have to make the retailer happy with us? Maybe there are some other more creative ways that we can do that. When you know what the objective is, you can work out what the best way to do something. Wow. But the starting point is so different now. The starting point is so different. Fantastic. Yes. If you thought that the sales spike was the thing to do, then you'd be trying to do price promotions every day. In fact, people say that I have had people say, no, my purpose of my sales promotion is to get such a big sales spike that I actually make money from it. I go, great. Well, then why don't you do it 365 days a year? Yeah, right. And the answer is, zero. oh, well, I haven't actually worked out how to make money. No, you haven't. No, yes, you would lose. Yeah, okay. Recognition, we lose money on it, sure, but we lose money on lots of things, like the CEO's salary costs money, but these are all necessary. Okay, fabulous. So what about loyalty programs? I know it's another one of your favorites, and it's another very controversial subject because it's it creates a lot of babble around, oh, how can you not have loyalty programs and how can you not constantly invest in the more loyal buyers? And are you not tracking your repeat sales? What are your repeats like? If you're not getting repeats, then you're not going to be growing. All brands get loyalty. To the, and most of the things that we do in the company are about looking after our existing customers. The question is, how far do we go with that? And do we need a loyalty program? And I think a lot of people got into loyalty programs without thinking about that, without actually looking at the evidence and saying, well, customers are reasonably loyal at the moment. How much extra are we going to get out of them? What sort of response? So we've had almost 20 years of research on loyalty programs now, and the answer is fairly resounding. They have a very weak effect on loyalty, largely because you already had loyalty. They come at a very great cost because the people who join the program, the people who are our most loyal customers, 
who therefore are going to get the most benefit. I remember my parents lived in a, in a country town in New Zealand, and there was only one. There was only in, in the town. There's only one petrol station, and so of course they joined the loyalty program because that's where they bought their petrol. They, it was stupid not to, and that is the case. Only one petrol station that ran a loyalty program. Fantastic. I mean, for supermarkets and retail stores, have they have very high what we call first brand loyalty and the, the leading brand in your repertoire gets the bulk of your business. And these are the people who join the loyalty program. Well, I shop here quite regularly. Great. I join the loyalty program or I fly on that airline. I mostly fly on that airline. Oh, I'll join its loyalty program. I, that's where I bank. That is my bank. Well, I have another credit card with another bank, but this is my main bank. So yeah, I'll join that program. You know, it's interesting to know that very, very, there are lots of very successful companies in the world, the Apples, the Aldis, the, and who have quite firmly said they don't need a loyalty program. The problem is once you have one, it's really hard to get rid of it. Even if people aren't using the points, if you tell them, if you write them a letter and say, we're going to take your points off you, they get very upset. So loyalty programs are something that you need to be very careful about going into because they're difficult to get out of them. You will not get great returns from a loyalty program. So when do loyalty programs work? It's impossible. They have a weak effect on loyalty. So they, they don't really work in the sense that they cost a lot of money for a very little return. They're the only loyalty programs that really make money, and there are some that really make money, but they make money by selling involvement in the program to other marketers. What does that mean by So Qantas, right, a national airline of Australia, its loyalty program makes it lots of money because it sells involvement to other credit cards and retailers. And so there are, they offer Qantas frequent flyer points if you shop at my store or stay at my hotel or rent your car through this thing or use this credit card. And so Qantas makes lots of money out of this. Wow. So if I were a smart marketer, then I should follow the Qantas model? If you've got something that, where you can where you can really sell it to other marketers, yes. Right, right. You have to be big. Of course, lots of Australians join the Qantas frequent flyer program because, I mean, you have to, you know, it's very hard not to use Qantas. Wow, yeah. If you're going to fly around in the, inside the country or out of the country, you actually have to get a quite a lot of effort not to use Qantas. Not to use Qantas, right. But you know you're going to be using Qantas and you fly on a Qantas and you go, oh, yeah, I'll join the program. And that then gives Qantas the ability to sell that to credit card companies and hotels. So advertising, again, a very, very, a very oft asked question on should advertising be persuasive or not? Is persuasive advertising more important than advertising that refreshes and builds memory structures in the sense that buy me because blah, 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 and I do a great job of this versus advertising that constantly builds memory structures. The reason why I'm asking this is because there is this notion, again, in creativity that if there are codified brand templates or if there is a brand book, then it tends to restrict and I'm unable to come with more creative plots. So what kind of advertising does really work? Well, Marketing science is very supportive of creative advertising because we now have a picture of the brands are a small part in consumers' lives. Even the biggest brands in the world have lots of light buyers, very infrequent buyers, and that's the norm. So the idea of being able to really grab people with a, an advertisement and shake up their mind and make them realize, oh, I'm buying the wrong brand is rather fanciful. Actually getting any sort of attention or in the sense that people 
registered the ad and knew which brand it was for is really hard. They don't care about their advertising very much. So that means it needs to be lovely and creative and interesting. Does it need to be persuasive? No, it can be very effective by just being lovely and interesting and throwing a spotlight on our brand, building some mental availability. That's how most advertising works most of the time. Now, some ads can also be persuasive by telling us something that we didn't that we truly didn't know, but this is quite rare. I'm thinking for, uh, for consumer goods, things that sell in pharmacies and uh, supermarkets, or uh, it's hard to tell us something that we don't actually already know. Gosh, my this sunscreen will protect you from the sun. Well, yes, I would hope so, because it's sunscreen. It really is quite difficult to say something that is truly persuasive. But the good news is we don't actually have to do that. Most advertising doesn't do that. The job of advertising is to remind people that when they think sunscreen, they see us on the shelf and they realize, oh, that is a the banana boat is a sunscreen. Because if you have not heard of banana boat, you can't tell that's a sunscreen. But advertising can teach people. Advertising can teach people, I mean, the, the most famous example, that a very strange retailer with a Scottish name and a weird golden arches actually sells American diner food, hamburger. We have to be taught that, and advertising can remind us that, uh, but it can't really tell us that McDonald's... We know what McDonald's food tastes like. It does need to remind us. So I don't need to be persuaded. I don't need to be told about what McDonald's food is all about, but I do need to be reminded. So you've got this example in your book that says, we've got data that says Colgate is 50% more dependent on switchers than Crest. And so what we must do is comparative advertisements against Crest. So just talk to me about how does advertising work? So you're saying advertising is about reminding people in the banana boats example that you gave is if I'm thinking sunscreen, then I must think banana boat. How do I get there if I'm a new brand? So one is I could be an existing brand. Let's say I'm a new brand. I'm a new brand and I'm looking to launch a range of skincare products. What kind of advertising can I do? Okay, right. Skincare, that's a great classic category that has thousands of brands. So most brands you will never buy in your entire life. Wow. Right? So if you're launching a new skincare brand, you think, right, I'd be very lucky if any buyers buy me ever. Wow. Okay. But people do need skincare. So they, they're either looking at a shelf display in a physical world or they're looking at a on a shelf spray on a screen. That's what we need to, that's what our advertising does is teach people that's our brand. It, you're looking for skincare, you're looking for a moisturizer. Our brand is a moisturizer. You can sit, now see it on shelf. And that increases the chance of purchase to by astonishing factor. And that's why big brands are very big because more people sometimes see them. More people sometimes see them. And they have been able to make that mental connection in your head that moisturizer is equal to this brand. So if you're looking for a moisturizer, look out for this brand. And then the, the mind is automatically attuned to picking out that brand from the shelf. And everything else seems to be a haze for the mind. Yes. Most of the time, when we go to choose, we're choosing between one or two. Or three. We're choosing between one. Yeah, there might be 100 brands in that store, but we're choosing between one or two or three. We just don't see. And there, there might be other brands that would be better and might be other ones that are on price promotion, but we don't see them because we're looking, we, we see the brands that are in our head. So that's the very important role that advertising 
does. When someone goes into a, I mean, even a typical supermarket, it's like 20,000, 30,000 items in there. Right. People go in and buy five items and get out in five minutes. Right. It's just amazing how fast consumers can do this, which they have to do. Otherwise, they would have no life. Yeah, thank God for that. Yeah. So how does a market up? Yeah. So I'm in Madrid and I, I went to buy some, I went to buy some summer trousers. I'm in Madrid and I went to two stores, which I know and associate with Spain, which are Zara and Mango. Now, in doing so, I walked past hundreds of others, but I don't know the others. And I knew that Zara and Mango would probably, I'd be able to buy from one of them. That's enough. That's enough. That's the search engine. Jenny Romanek likes to talk about the search engine between our ears, which is we just go, okay, need some more where would I get those? Well, Zara, I would think, yeah. Oh, there's also Mango here, isn't there? Yeah, okay. And that's it. Two, two brands. Two shops. I'm not going to do more than that. So all of those brands that are trying some very creative storytelling, but have failed to make an impression on you and have failed to make you make the connection, Summer Trousers is equal to that brand, have all failed in their advertising. Yes. The first hurdle is to build those memory structures and to keep them fresh. To add another layer on them, or also tell people we're the best. Well, all right. But just remember that first hurdle. It's probably pretty big. First is the biggest, which is this is equal to my brand is equal to a moisturizer. My brand is equal to summer trousers is the biggest one to get to. Actually, coming to teenagers, Byron, why don't we talk about what impact do kids have? I mean, like I was on a panel on Gen Z marketing a couple of months back, and I was talking about how all of the big decisions in the house actually seem to be not just influenced, almost taken by this 13-year-old I have in the house. I mean, which car we bought recently, the laptop, what else? The new TV that we bought, I mean, so... That's a very good point. And it, it illustrates why the danger of targeting rather than realizing that your category is actually quite broad. So, yes, there's a real danger of saying, oh, well, we sell expensive TVs. So we don't need, our advertising doesn't need to reach 13 year olds because they don't buy expensive TVs, but but they influence those decisions. Exactly. Similarly, so for a big car, I mean, who would think that a big car needs to be advertising to a 13 year old? Yeah. But a classic thing that goes off in people's heads when they're purchasing for a household or they go to buy something, is this our brand? Like if I bring this home, will I get told off that I've bought the wrong one? You bought the wrong one, dad, or you can't buy that brand of car, Dad. No. So, yeah, our target market is much broader than we think. Of course, they are also the category buyers of the future as well. And so if you want your brand to grow, you need to be winning at least your fair share of new category buyers. And that means reaching, which... And kids are terribly curious, so they do learn about the world. This is our chance mm. to get into that to get into their heads. Also, a really important role of advertising that I think we neglect often is that it, it, advertising helps us be loyal, right? We would like, we like to simplify our lives. We buy something, it works. We don't get told off by the other members of the family for buying the wrong one. If it's all okay, we'll do that again. But to do that, we need to know what is the brand that is purchased? What does it look like? What are its colors? How would I see it? We need to be able to do this. Now, I know this is an audio podcast, but if, you know, for the video, you can see I'm in a staying in an apartment in Madrid, and behind me is a fridge. And it's just occurred to me, I've opened this fridge quite a few times now already, and if you said to me, what brand is it? I'd go, I don't know. And this is true for many times for purchases. It's a, something that 
hit small brands, small new brands particularly, they win a sale, person buys them and then never comes back. Not because they didn't like it, because they never saw any advertising for or no one else spoke about it. So they just, they consumed the brand and then they forgot about it. And But if they had bought that brand and then that night heard a radio ad or TV ad for it, that would help enormously in laying down some memory structures, which would make it so much easier for them to then buy it again. But often marketers don't do this. And so it is a funny thing to actually ask people, so what brands your microwave? And often people don't know. And you think, well, the marketer has done a very bad job. They got the sale, but they probably won't get another one because... So, so see, over here, you're picking on a very important fallacy because people believe if the life cycle of a particular product, I mean, if the gestation period between two purchases is very high, then it's pointless to advertise to the same person. And you're saying, no, you must still advertise to that customer because A, this customer might come back to buy you the second time. And I'm guessing, which you didn't say, but would also be so that this person can then talk about this favorable experience to another person. Oh, I bought an LG microwave. It's really working out well for me. It has these functions which uh, are a real delight. Yes, people, I mean, people don't do a lot of that, but they do when someone says to them, I'm going, I'm going to buy a washing machine. What brand is yours? That does that. And, and if, if you say, uh, I'm not sure, then it's lost. Right? I always make the observation that car manufacturers are not the greatest advertisers in the world. They tend to produce a lot of advertising that looks identical. But they do one thing that is sensible. Every car brand in the middle of the steering wheel puts their logo. That's the one you're driving. You're driving a Toyota. Remember, you're driving a Toyota. And when people go to buy a new car, about 50% of the time, they buy the same brand they bought last time. So it's very important that they do know. Actually, Toyota is a huge success in trucks. And do you see this in India? There's a, I don't know what Toyota highlights or something, but it's really different from other trucks in that on the back of the truck, it's got Toyota. Ah, uh, yes. It's in big letters. Yes, it's really loud. You can't miss it. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's so clever. We've And so over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, we've all been seeing these Toyotas on the back of trucks. And that's fantastic advertising. We, I mean, I know Toyota makes trucks. If you say to me, who else makes trucks like that? That's quite, that's more difficult. And how simple is that? One would think, oh, like I was saying, it's not so much about the features and how great you are and how much better you might be versus competition. It's quite simply about making sure that your brand name sticks in the consumer's mind. And that is what Toyota has got right. So you don't forget that's a Toyota because I've seen... That massive. Well, it's important. It's important to have great products and things, but the biggest battle is to have a chance to be considered. When people go to buy a truck, they probably look at one or two brands. So, where do you lose your sales when I'm not one of those one or the two? Then I have no chance. Doesn't matter how good I am. I, they didn't look at me. They never went to my dealership. They didn't look me up online. I had no chance. Even though I, maybe I make great trip. Yeah, that's and, and that's so simple. That's so simple. Actually, one can just remember just these two lines from this entire podcast. Then that would be huge. I mean, it's, it can change everything that a brand might do. So your favorite brand? Favorite? I, no, I don't, have a, I don't have a favorite brand. <laughs> like most consumers, there are lots of brands, but I don't have a favorite. Uh, any one brand that comes to your mind just now? I was... I have a product that I like enormously, which is at home. I have a projector rather than a TV. It projects on the wall. It's fantastic. And that's Samsung, which is a brand that actually doesn't 
I don't know very well, but <laughs> they need to do better advertising and remind me. Okay, fantastic. So much for a brand in a marketer's mind. Okay, a song that you can listen to anytime? Chaka Khan's Clouds. Okay. Any Chaka Khan song, actually. A book you'd like to read on a long train journey? I just read one, which was good. It's called The Cat's Table, and it's by Michael. He wrote The English Patient. Ah, okay. The English Patient, I know. Okay. Yeah, he won the Booker Prize for The English Patient, yes. But this book is called The Cat's Table. It's about some children on a... It's a whimsical novel. It's about some boys um, from Colombo, from Sri Lanka, uh, on a four- or five-week boat trip to the UK in, I don't know, 100 years ago. Okay, fantastic. If you came face-to-face with Kotler, what would you talk about? Well, I have chatted to Phil Kotler. I asked Phil Kotler, had he ever done any research? And he gave me quite a long answer, but the answer was essentially no. He was not a research academic. He was actually previously an economist. What I tell him is actually I do I like I like his first book. I bought it on Amazon, the 1967 version. I quite like it. Well, wow. it's much better written than his more modern ones. I think the thing is he wrote it himself, whereas nowadays I don't think he writes any of his books. That's why they're probably written by 100 people and they read like they're written by 100 people. Okay, fantastic. If you had to launch your own brand, then what product category or service would you choose? Well, I have. The Aaron Big Bass Institute is just this little university research center in Adelaide, Australia. Remember, only 20% of the world live in the Southern Hemisphere, let alone in Australia. And now that's a fairly famous global brand in marketing. So I'd like to say I have done it. And yes, we we did realize that at a certain point, we have to practice what we preach and we really have to gain reach through publicity and we have to build fame. I remember thinking at one time, but you know, we have more PhDs on our staff than any commercial market research agency. And then I thought, no one cares about that. Isn't that hard to apply all of the stuff that you know on your own brand? I find exactly the same problem even with my own brand. We have a natural tendency to want to go towards differentiation and tell the world why we're better and forget that we're not telling many people. Right. Maybe we should focus on reaching more people. Yeah, okay. Fantastic. Yeah, of course. And then I have an interesting one. If you were employed by Unilever as their marketing head, then what designation would you like to choose for yourself? Chief marketing officer, chief growth officer, or what would you fancy? I don't, I think Connie's title, what's Connie's titles? Chief marketing and digital transformation or something, something complicated. I'd choose something simple, probably chief marketing officer because people know it. I'm a great fan of, I prefer the IT department. We're called the IT department. And when they have a very long name, I think that means you're not really... Yeah, you're not really very thinking of customers. You're probably not doing anything. Okay, localized content or global advertising for a global brand launching in a new market, which would it be? That's an interesting question. I think the world is becoming a more global place and the rise of brands continues enormously. Categories that were completely unbranded now are dominated. The high street retail shopping centers have been absolutely transformed. We used to have... You used to have lots of stores that sold many brands. It had to be owned by the classic in America, a mom and pop store, and it sold lots of brands. They've all been replaced by single brand stores. You have a Levi's store, an Apple store, a Samsung store. So the rise of brands is amazing. So I would have to say there are huge advantages of having a consistent use of distinctive brand assets globally. That said, great marketing is still 
done in the real world and the real world varies a lot so there's an awful lot of localized stuff that has to be done but it can still be done with the branding elements looking exactly the same every brand must have a purpose true or false if you mean offering something to the world beyond what's what we so we have research in the institute on brand purpose at the moment and the key thing is that it offers something to consumers beyond the function so buy your mexican meal here and we'll also make a donation. It's giving something else extra. And no, most brands of the world don't. So, and it's not essential for them to do that. No, we can get, and it can be very dangerous that we can be get very distracted. Every brand has a reason to exist. These AirPods here I use because they're really very convenient, tiny little headphones. Yes. Does this also have to build wells for children in the Sahara? No. Perfect. Big celebrity versus nobody. If it was your own brand, then what would you choose? Assuming you still have bags of money, you have bags of money and you're launching your own brand, what would you choose? Big celebrity versus nobody? I think it, I don't think there's a blanket answer for that, but celebrities are quite, Jenny Romanek talks about the vampire effect. You can often end up just advertising them rather than your brand. So it has to be used very with caution and implementation is going to matter enormously. I think George Clooney did pretty well for Nespresso. Fit the brand worked very well. Tiger Woods for Accenture? No. I used to remember all those ads in airports and think, that's a great ad for Tiger Woods, uh, but it's not an ad for Accenture. Right, right. Except that Accenture were paying the money. Yes. The, the terrible thing is Accenture's paying the money for the media, putting the ad in the air, that's very expensive, and they're paying Tiger Woods. Correct, exactly. And, it, and what are these ads doing? They're making Tiger Woods even more famous. Great. Good deal for him. Byron, I've really, really enjoyed this interview. This episode was brought to you by Cherry Peach Plum Growth Partners. Wani and her team of marketeers and problem solvers at Cherry Peach Plum help businesses solve a wide range of growth challenges by utilizing proven marketing playbooks. Get in touch with Wani at wani at the rate cherrypeachplum.in if you want to take your brand to the next level. I hope you liked my show. And if you did, please do consider subscribing. I also have a YouTube channel by the same name, Marketing by Vani. Please do check that out too. Thank you. <laughs> How badly could you screw up one line? <laughs> okay. So I did screw up. My YouTube channel is called Marketing with Barney, the same name as this podcast. 